Before this week's episode, it gives me great pride to announce that Big Red Potion has now become part of the Unified Gamers Network. The UGN is a portal to and a network between like-minded podcasts and sites like Cranky Gamers UK, The Ninja Fat Pigeons, Games Traffic and Frugal Gaming. Check it out at unifiedgamersnetwork.com for more information. Thanks to Dits for organising the network and thank you and welcome to our fellow UGN sites. This is Big Red Potion. Game Reviews Game On Network, you're listening to Big Red Potion, the podcast that is smaller, worse, and kind of wimpy. I'm your resolute host, Sinan Kuba, staff writer and associate editor for the Game Reviews, and as ever, I'm joined by the man who puts the mass into Mass Effect, and I think that's the cruelest one we've done so far for Thank Joe's you. introduction. Sorry, Joe. Um, it's, it's TGR's preview director, Joseph Delia. How you doing, Joe? I am doing fantastic, and I just want to really, right away from the get-go, I want to recommend this book that I read this week. It's called oh, Shatner it. Quake. <laughs> it's about a William Shatner convention that William Shatner goes to, and a bomb goes off that sets all of his characters loose within the convention halls. So William Shatner has to do battle with T.J. Hooker, Captain Kirk, Rescue 911 Shatner, Priceline Commercial Shatner, and 70 Singer Shatner in a 90-page novel. And I don't want to give away the big surprise at the end. I'll just say that Captain Kirk and a lightsaber come together. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you can't see right now, but my jaw just hit the desk. I'm in <laughs> awe of this. I'm speechless. Uh, just I, you didn't actually need to describe it to me. You just those two words together, Shatner and Quake, that sold me immediately. That's just two, those two <laughs> words together. That's incredible. Wait till you see the box art. Well, yeah, you heard our guest there, but I'll, I'll introduce them anyway. So um, first up, well, actually, both of them are from the. Uh, Gaming mecca of America, we, we've decided it's Portland, Oregon, where everyone needs to be. Uh, anyway, regular listeners will recognize the smooth tones of T- TGR staff writer Jeffrey Matliff, um, who's been on the show previously many times. So, Jeffrey, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. Thanks for having me again for is it the third time. Said? Yeah, third time. Does that give well, me tenure? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I was actually getting on Sinan's nerves by wanting to be on the program a lot, but it's hard not to. He's got a great, a great assortment of uh, topics to come up. I won't give them away, but stay tuned. With or without me, they'll be, they'll be great. Oh, flattery will get you everywhere, Jeffrey. Um, <laughs> so, Jeffrey, I don't know if you if you heard our last show, but we we were talking about a few indie games we've been playing, and it kind of made me lament the fact that we've um, not had a what we've been playing section on on the show. So, I wanted to do one. But this week, I want you to tell us about the game, the last game you've been playing, but just in one word. Then don't tell us the game it was. So just the one word to describe the last game you've been playing. Um, beautiful. Wow. Kind of lame, but... Well, you'll, we'll never know what that game was. Um, so, <laughs> our, our second guest this week is Steve Haskey from Play Magazine, or more accurately, playmagazine.com, with whom Steve recently joined to become their online editor. So, Steve, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Sinan. Right, you're more than welcome. Um, so, Steve, as well, the last game you've been playing, and in one word. Um, Rumba. That's amazing. I love it. And again, we'll never know the game. Joe, how about you? 
I know which game he's talking about. <laughs> oh, don't tell us, don't tell us. I, I, I want okay. our listeners to hate me for that. So, Joe, um, <laughs> your, your last game, in one word. I think you guys are going to know it. Uh, three Dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of two words, but... That's it's okay. a name. It's, okay. it's a name. One, one word. Uh, I, I'm going to go with Flamboyant. Ooh. So, yeah. so anyway, uh, let's get on to this week's show topic. And... Uh, I'm not even going to try and preface uh, this show like we did last week's show with the idea of sunshiny guests or any uh, other attempt of being happy-go-lucky because uh, this week's topic is really quite morbid. This week and next week, actually, we're going to be talking about death in video games. It's going to be a two-part special. This week, we're going to challenge the notion that's gathering burgeoning support from the game's press that death in video games is dying or is even dead. With more and more games shunning the once-accepted mechanic through workarounds such as an ever-present companion to rescue or a mysterious chamber to immediately revitalise you, we're going to ask whether it's time for Death to hang up its boots, well, his boots and his scythe, and depart from games forever. Or is there a place left for for Death in gaming? And if so, what form is it in? How can it be implemented? And will it be too taxing on the player? Things like that. So those are the questions facing our pod panel today. And to ease ourselves into them, we're going to start the discussion off by examining Death's place in history of video games and how integral it was to the classic gaming model of days bygone. So to do that, I'm going to hand over to my beautiful assistant, Joe. Thanks, sweetie. Yeah, Death has been around in games since the beginning, and it's been an integral part of the whole experience. I mean, ever since the first Pong paddle missed its ball and met its grisly end, we've been seeing Death implemented in a variety of different ways in games. So I wanted to get you guys' thoughts on classic gaming and death, and if there are any particular games from your past that immediately comes to mind when you think of death in classic video games. Um, well, I'd have to say, first and foremost, what comes to mind are uh, Konami's old uh, Ultra label series, so like Contra and Gradius especially, uh, and even, I guess, the old Castlevanias, but those... I mean, those uh, the NES ones, well, NES and Super NES, I suppose, uh, were just brutal in a lot of ways, especially, especially Gradius, probably. Well, I rem- remember uh, a lot of NES games you know, no- are known for having a password system or sometimes even no password system, just no way of continuing once you turn the NES off. So a lot of games, you just had a set number of, of continues and had to go all the way back to the beginning when you died which was really cool, and I was eight and only got a couple of games a year, so I'd need them to last me a long time. So that's kind of, when I think about the, the history of death in games, I think about how, just how brutal it used to be and how much it relied on pattern memorization and really getting everything down so you can ride it like a bicycle and get back to where you were. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting back then because, like, you know, we're going to go into the mechanics of, of how death can be used as a mechanic in a bit, but back then it was kind of like, the games are only 20 to 40 minutes you know, long if you were able to just run through them with infinite lives, but they use death kind of to extend the gameplay of these. Like Contra, you could be Contra in like 30 minutes if you have infinite lives, no damage or anything. So death definitely in the 8-bit days especially, and especially in the old arcades also where death was kind of used to keep you pumping the quarters in, and, and that just evolved to be more so over time, especially when the beat-em-ups became popular in games like... Um, the Simpsons arcade game and the X-Men arcade game where you would die in about five shots and you'd have special moves that were awesome but they would take pieces of your health away so that you would die quicker and you would have to put more quarters in. Um, it was definitely uh, interesting to see how death was implemented back then. Uh, Sinan, you have any other games that um, immediately well, bring death to your mind? 
you mentioned the Simpsons arcade game, and I just remember how, with that game, the balance of how much time you got before you died was pretty much dead on. I, I could get about maybe eight minutes into it, and then, you know, maybe past the first boss, and then into the second boss, and then I die. And pretty much every time that was the case. And, uh, you know, it's just that, that hook digs into you, it digs into you, and you just put another quarter in or, or another pound and uh, keep going, keep going. And, of course, that's what made the arcade scene in the so successful was this incredibly <laughs> cunning way of tricking youngsters into spending all their all their money. Um, I guess I, I looked at a, an article Games Radar did, and they 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 looked at the history of death in in video games and looked by the decades. And one of the ones they brought up was Pac-Man, which I kind of always that was my first really sort of video game I played, and uh, the first one probably to have death. So that comes to mind. Well, that was a game. I mean, in that one, the enemies actively chased you as opposed to many other games where they just kind of stand around. You had to dodge them. So that one was. I mean, I, I still can't get very far in Pac-Man. Pac-Man has a very random element to it um, in terms of, I think, where the enemies spawn, or maybe, maybe it plays the same way every time. But isn't there, isn't it a little different each time you play? Yeah, there's. I mean, there are some patterns to it all, um, and I think that's what made it so engrossing. As you know, that game that uh, really caught people's imaginations because there was a way to be good at it and to learn what all the ghosts were doing and how they would respond, and learning the kind of percentages about it and. The, the complexity of that game is insane. Like, uh, I think there's a quite interesting thing. Pac-Man actually goes faster in the straights than he goes in the corners, and it's really weird. Um, so there is actually quite a lot to that game. Um, it's not as random as it, it may come across. Well, I meant random in a, in a good way, because a lot of games are kind of rote memorization. You know, you remember where the enemies are and get a certain pattern down, and it seems like Pac-Man you know, is really a classic in that it it changes enough every time you play. So even though you'll you get better at it and you'll be a little more used to the level layouts, it'll still keep you on your toes every time. My primary thought about death in classic gaming is Mega Man. The entire Mega Man series, the whole thing was about um, you know forcing you to memorize every little last detail, and it was never too impossible where you would want to you know stop playing like something like I don't know. Ninja Gaiden kind of approached that level. So did Contra, um, game like Comic Zone, especially. Also, but the Mega Man series also kind of it was it was hard enough so that you would have to sit there for hours and hours and hours just to get to the, you know the next point that you weren't able to get to previously. But never so impossible that you wanted to throw the controller and never touch the game again. And I think that's why I mean the series is still around today, still making the same games that it was in, in the 80s. That they they found the perfect difficulty balance of super hard, but also super addictive, where you would not want to stop playing. And I think that's uh, Mega Man was one of the early games to really get how to implement death right in a hard game. Do you still feel that way, having played the new Mega Man 9? Mega Man 9 definitely did a lot of things right. I think they ramped it up a little bit extra, but I think they did that for the fans who wanted that kind of thing. I think they knew what they were doing when they, when they made Mega Man 9 a little extra painful. And I did enjoy Mega Man 9, yeah. I would totally okay. agree. I, I, I got that impression that it was for the fans, that they were making it so insanely difficult. And we just we were talking about Bitrip Beat last week, and I, you know, that's the same exact reason, that it's just that little bit too hard, because it's not for um, maybe the, the newer audience of gamers. This is a retro game. Absolutely. Well, I, I guess I, I feel like I, I appreciate a difficult game. I liked Mega Man 9 to an extent, but that was my, my biggest gripe about it, was it's not exactly its difficulty, but just the way that it it handled its difficulty. It felt like a lot of the time when you, you died was because you 
you didn't know what was coming up next, or you had to learn a boss's pattern, which is fun, but you get to a boss, lose all your lives, and have to do the whole, the whole level again, and it got to a point where you really knew each level very well, so repeating it stopped being fun for me, and it wasn't that big a deal um, for most of the game, because the levels are kind of short, but it, it bothered me more in all the Mega Man games, it always bothered me more in the final chapter where you have the gauntlet of bosses, and if you turn the the game off, you have to, the password system will only save um, that you beat all the, the main levels, and you have to start all the way back at the beginning of Wily's Castle, i.e. the last third of the game, and that always bothered me, and I had to admit, you know, I cheated in Mega Man 9 where I had to look up the the boss order for the for the final gauntlet. I got 99% of the way through the game without looking anything up, but by that point I'm like, I am not, I don't want to have to play through this whole series of levels every time I boot up my Wii. Well, I mean, it's definitely a different outlook. Like, my outlook on the, the whole difficulty thing in Mega Man 9, and all the Mega Man games, was every time that I would get to a situation where I didn't know what was about to happen, and they would throw something ridiculous, like... There is this one enemy that when you jump over a pit, the enemy will come out of the pit, grab you, and pull you down into the pit. And norm- like my- one of my friends was furious at this, and he wouldn't play the game after he died at this. And this is very early in the level, too. I was sent into hysterics when that happened. I, I loved the fact that they did that to me. So my outlook is a little different. That's why I kind of appreciated all of those uh, difficult sections, especially when they got later in the game and they would throw them at the end of a really long level, and I would laugh while I'm crying also, of course. How patient you are for that kind of game is, is how much you appreciate the mastery of death that Capcom has managed to um, to assemble over the past couple of years. I mean, to go along with that thought, there were some people who were lamenting the fact that you it wasn't as difficult as previous Mega Man's in terms of you didn't have that, you didn't have that password system for Dr. Wily's levels. There was, there was a sizable community saying, this is too easy, you can save, you can all, you know, do all this, and... Uh, Mega Man 9 is not a good example to go to because uh, it's not really relevant to modern gaming in any way. Mega Man uses death as a mechanic in its gameplay. It uses death to keep driving you, to keep you playing. Because if you were not the kind of person that could appreciate death, you wouldn't play this game. It's just not. It wouldn't be for you, as Sam was saying, just like Bitch or Beat. So um, I wanted to go into how death has been used as a mechanic in games um, and how developers have used it as a tool to tell their stories, to get you to play the game a certain way, the way that they want you to play it. Well, I'll give you an example just so that um, you guys kind of know what I'm talking about. Like, I always think that death um, is used very efficiently in survival horror games to, as a mechanic to get you to, to feel a certain way. Like, in the Resident Evil games, half the time that I was afraid of those ga- in those games is because... I had to, if I died, if I got killed by a random liquor every every you know corridor or whatever, I would have to traverse back to the previous save point, which was you know 20 to 30 minutes back. And after all the stuff I had done, picked up items, gone into different rooms, that fear for me was the greatest fear in Resident Evil. It was that I would have to redo everything that I did, and that every creature could literally chop my head off and finish me. And this was especially true in the Resident Evil remake on the GameCube because they introduced enemies in that game that would slaughter you. But, crimson um, Heads. Crimson Heads, that's it, right. Crimson Heads, yes. They would destroy you, and you didn't have that lot of ammo or health in that game. So they, it brought true fear to me, whereas Dead Space, to me, wasn't scary, even though I love that game, because you were, always had a checkpoint, you always had ammo, you always had health. 
And even though they set a fantastic mood in that game, um, I didn't think death was used efficiently at, at putting the fear in the player. Like you say, Joe, the Resident Evil remake is a really good example because I, yeah, again, the Crimson Heads I found quite terrifying when I when I played through it because, yeah, I mean, it, you you have to you have to play through it extra cautiously basically and and kill every zombie that you come across and, and you know uh, cut off their head or incinerate their body. Uh, what have you, so that they don't come back as crimson heads and thus cause you more trouble and more fear. But um, along those same lines, I would actually... Uh, it reminds me of Shinobi for PS2. Right. That's It's definitely one of the... Uh, I, I think I think they use death very well in, in, in that game. Um, especially, you know, about halfway through, they kind of stop giving you solid surfaces so that you just have to run along <laughs> the sides of wall, you know, sides of buildings or whatever and usually chain your way through a, a group of enemies to get over a giant chasm and if you uh, you know, if you can't do it then you obviously fall to your death and you have to do the entire level over again because there's no checkpoints. No, I, so. I totally agree. Uh, Shinobi actually kind of reminded me a bit of Mega Man because it was so brutally difficult, but it was so addictive that you just kept going and you wanted to get to the next point. It's kind of funny that you brought up the Resident Evil remake as Steve just loaned that to me, and I just started playing it the other night. I'm not terribly far at all. I I don't really like that that feeling of tension, although I can respect it because I know that's why the designers chose to do it that way. But I always felt like that was sort of a, a cheap way of scaring people. Like I always thought one of the scariest moments in video games is fighting that that last Hammer Brothers in the original Mario right before you get to Bowser, because there's no health in the last level unless you get to the castle big. It's a one-hit kill for the whole level. That one Hammer Brothers is just really hard, and you're just so afraid you have to replay the entire level again. So I always really respected a horror game that could make me scared without having to do that. Um, I know Steve and I have disagreed on this, but I thought Bioshock was rather scary. Not quite, you know, in the top tier of scariest games I've played, but it was kind of, it was close though. It was, it still, you know, gave me chills in the the parts of Fort Frolic with the paper mache spider splicers. So, so I, I think that it's a good way to instill tension. I just, I really, maybe I'm not as patient as uh, the rest of the pod here. And I go through a question earlier about it. If a game death mechanic ever made me play a game differently, I was thinking of the the Prince of Persia reboot and how that has no penalty for dying. You just go back a very small amount. And that made me play the game differently because I was very risky about going for all the different light orbs, just which is incidentally my favorite part of the game, was just trying to get all the the ones that are sort of off the beaten path that you had to to do more interesting things to find. So that was a game that really you know, if it had a live system, you might just not bother with that. So I thought it kind of really enhanced you to play the game in a specific way. First off, uh, I I did I wouldn't I would disagree with you about finding it scary, but I found it creepy. Uh, I'd make that difference in my in 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 my judgment because Rapture in itself is a it's not a fun place to be, and um, I, I I don't think I get scared by video games, so maybe it's invalid for me to say it's not scary. Of course, what's important by, by, about Bioshock is one of these games which um, doesn't really punish the player for dying, like Prince of Persia. You just go back to this revitalized chamber, and uh, you're only maybe a minute or half a minute away from where you were before, and of course the enemies have the same health you left them with. It's just nothing's changed at all. You mentioned Prince of Persia as well. And for some reason, 
I'm okay with Bioshock with the way it handles the death, you know, not not dying and no game over. And I'm absolutely abhorrent of Prince of Persia's way of handling it. And I think uh, there's maybe uh, I've argued that it, it's not to do with Prince of Persia's lack of difficulty um, because you know it really isn't hard to pull off any of these moves. It's it's very simple movements you have to do. But I think it's maybe there's it's a lot to do with just the fact that at least in Bioshock. <laughs> You kind of sort of die in the sense at least you you're removed from things with Prince of Persia you're just seeing someone go oh here you go get out of jail free card uh, and it, it feels like it's invalidating the whole challenge because there's just this get out of jail free card every single time um, I think if I remember Bioshock correctly it didn't have save points you could save at any time couldn't you yeah that's right so I guess adding the vibe chambers was sort of a, a way to pr- prevent people from just quick saving all the time, which would be even cheaper and less fun. And and I guess my, my view on the Vita Chambers, uh, I wrote about this on a, an article for the site at one point, that uh, I really like that it keeps you in the game. So even when you die, even though you only have to backtrack a few rooms to get to where you were, the, the game had a really did a great job at handling how to respawn enemies. It was very randomized. So even though you're just treading the same ground, there's still a chance that a, an enemy could pop up around the corner and still kept you very tense. So I appreciated that. I, I do think it would have been nice to have an option to make it so enemies would regenerate their health as well when you die, so you can keep the challenge intact. Notably, with the Big Daddy fights, I always save before I got to Big Daddy just because I I like to, to have the challenge of trying to take one down without dying just for my own benefit. But I, I still thought it was a, a cool design choice, though, just to to keep you in the game and to keep things feeling fresh all the time. Whereas in Prince of Persia, you're doing the exact same movements each time, so it so I thought it, it worked rather well. And in that, so I wasn't having to reach right too much ground doing you know doing the same thing. I I, I think with Prince of Persia, it is it's a very subjective thing, and that a lot, it's not just I did, but a lot of people had in terms of the basic difficulty of that game is. The barrier to entry is so low, and uh, the movements you make are essentially it's almost quick time eventy. So um, that didn't appeal to me much, and I I don't know whether that's what it is for me. The other thing I wanted to bring up, which um, you were you've all got towards with talking about Resident Evil, is the with especially with the survival horror genre is um, it scaring you, and is that related to just being punished for death, or or, or can horror games be scary on without that? Um, I always found when I was playing Resident Evil as, as a youngster, I played in the dark, and I, I felt like the two things fed off each other. In that, I, I, you know, I knew I was going to get sent back because I'd die, but at the same time, that kind of made the whole thing a bit more scarier in a way. It was, it's kind of like the punishment made it scarier, and the fact that it was scary made the punishment worse, and it, it kind of like a vicious cycle. As far as uh, as far as old survival horror games go, uh, I, I would I would tend to agree with that, but I think for new ones, like especially RE5. It, it's scary, or actually, I wouldn't even say RE5 is scary per se. But so let, let's say RE4. It definitely had its moments where it was really creepy, and um, I, I and I, I also like to play survival horror games in the dark. So I think that's really the only way you should play them. So with RE4, I thought there were times that uh, it was really creepy, but because of the way that it was, it, there was always checkpoints, or or you know, you you had typewriters every so often that you could save. It, I, I think that, that 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 tension and fear that you get from old survival horror games, where you do have to go and replay a, a long section, 
especially with a game like the Resident Evil remake where you have, you know, enemies that, that are quasi-random, if you will, it's it's not there, like with, with the new games. I think that it, it does take away from the experience to, to some degree or another because even when you die in RE4, RE5, you just go, well, you know, okay, I died, and that sucks, but the the checkpoint was, you know, maybe 10 minutes ago or something. So I, I don't have to replay all this, and... So if there if there is any fear to be had um, in in those games, I think it it really just comes from the atmosphere. Although again, I would I would argue that at least RE5 isn't isn't scary. That's interesting. Kind of what you're you're saying is that in with games kind of becoming less punishing with uh, dying and game game over that maybe even not not necessarily that games were scary beforehand, but they're much less likely to be scary now. Because, like you're saying, checkpoints are so close together, it, it doesn't feel like punishment anymore. It's it's funny you mention that, Sinan, um, because I were we were talking about Dead Space earlier, and um, I found Dead Space to be terrifying. Jeffrey and I disagree on this, but it wasn't. I, I just I just thought it was very very moody and atmospheric, and uh, the way that you always heard the necromorphs usually before before you ever saw them and they could just come out at random places i i found that to be uh quite scary and i don't usually find survival horror games to be all that scary um creepy but but not but not truly scary but yeah the checkpointing did i mean it it could have been that much scarier but because of the checkpointing it, it wasn't yeah that was i mean as I said before, I love Dead Space, but that's where it, it really faltered for me is that I was never really afraid of anything that came out of me. And even though there would be some crazy, like, this wild arm thing would pop out of a wall and grab me and stuff, I always had this safety feeling in, inside because I always knew that if I died, I would be right back there to do it again. And I think that really affected the way that I played that game. And I was more aggressive in that game with my shooting than I would have been had I been afraid of my... Um, afraid of death. So an example to counteract this with would be Silent Hill Homecoming, which was not as good a game as Dead Space, but <clears throat> I thought it was scarier than Dead Space. And the reason because is that in Silent Hill Homecoming, you didn't really have that much we- that many weapons, you didn't have that much health. And the villains in that game were pretty deadly. You had to... There were a couple of situations where you had to fight, and you would take quite a licking in those fights unless you did everything flawlessly, which we were not going to do. And for that, and because the checkpoints were pretty spaced out in Silent Homecoming, I was far more afraid during my playthrough of that than I was ever in Dead Space. And, you know, even though it was a not as good a game and not as well designed. So I think that, for me, that makes a big difference. And um, just to switch tracks a little bit from the horror uh, angle, I'll look at Mario Galaxy. For me in that game, I love Mario Galaxy. Amazing game. But for me, the best parts of Mario Galaxy were the, the the special levels where you're on like these rotating platforms with a ton of gaps. There's there's holes all over the place. Literally, the most challenging segments of that game, which was not that challenging overall, they they threw in a couple challenge levels, and those to me were the best parts of that experience because they there was more at stake in those levels. There was more fear in you that what you were doing was very important. What you every jump that you made made a difference. And that's why I think Nintendo in that specific game used death as a tool very effectively because, at certain parts, because it um, 
it made every last move that you make, just like it was in the original Mario game, every last move that you make counts. I'm inclined to agree there. I loved Mario Galaxy. I thought the difficulty was just pitch perfect. And it's, it's a very subjective thing about how, how much you like to retread. I, I've known from talking to you, Joe, that you're, you're more fond of games that, uh, that make you retread a lot more ground. Um, you know, listen, talk about Bitcher Beat and uh, some, I think it was uh, Need for Speed. On, you like running from the cops for a half hour and possibly having to do it all again. And I, I don't have that kind of patience, but I thought Mario Galaxy was sort of a, a very good, happy medium where you didn't have to, to you know, hoard up resources. You didn't have to replay that much, but each, you know, couple minute segment did have, you know, some very challenging parts. I think with Mario Galaxy, it, you used the word medium. I'd go with Spectrum in that uh, because you only had to complete 60 of the levels to finish the game, or, or you know, at least to complete it and get that end animation with uh, Bowser and all, all that stuff. Um, you didn't necessarily have to do the harder levels, and you know, but Joe, I'm, I'm assuming Joe, you're kind of talking about the, like the purple coin levels, for example, which were really yeah. difficult towards the yes. end, right? Um, so my girlfriend, for example wouldn't touch those levels when they came across um but she still you know got i think didn't quite get to 60 but did, you know did quite a few of the stages um and i guess this goes back to what you're saying jeffrey with that option in bioshock maybe to have the enemies go back to to, to full health it, games which have a spectrum of difficulty are, and specifically relating to death you know or, or getting to that game over uh, screen they're the ones which tend to be the most popular because they are accessible to uh, all parts of the gaming audience. I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, I thought that, you know, Bioshock did it well, and I think I never really understood the, the complaints of people who didn't like the Vita Chambers because you could just not use them and rely on your um, your manual saves. But I guess when people know that they're there, it, it can be hard to resist that temptation. So maybe that's where, where the criticism comes from. And going on that point, I... Um... When, when I played through Bioshock, I have to admit, I, I used the Vita Chambers to my advantage a lot, um, especially when fighting big daddies, because, I mean, they're just so... They're they're very difficult enemies, and they take a lot of... Uh, a lot to bring down. Actually, I think I may have been playing on hard also, I can't remember. But at, at any rate, um, I would often find myself dying and just respawning from Vita Chamber and going back, and... So it, they definitely made me play the game a little bit differently than I would otherwise. I blogged recently about walking in video games and how um, if a game gives you a, a quick travel option, it's hard not to take it because that luxury is there. So sometimes gamer, game designers do have to be a little more sadistic in a way to, to enforce a feeling that you know, if they gave us a shortcut, we wouldn't have the willpower to resist. It's interesting that when, because we, really when you're talking about game over, you're talking about punishing the player. Um, and I guess this that kind of relates to, say, with EverQuest 2 versus World of Warcraft. Why everyone went to World of Warcraft, one of the major reasons was because EverQuest 2 was so punishing of players for death, and World of Warcraft was so not punishing. And um, I guess if that option is there to have an easier way through, players tend to go towards it, um, at least the majority of it. I think most people don't want frustrating experiences, uh, the hardcore experiences from their gameplay. Um, and this is, uh, I found an article from Joystick, actually, uh, 
it was uh, Ludwig Keitzmann's branching dialogue column, and uh, Ludwig, was Ludwig was talking about death and uh, Prince of Persia, and he commended Prince of Persia, saying uh, it addresses the, the, the game design elephants in the room, and by that, you know, uh, the frustration of dying, and said he, it successfully incorporates an inescapable video gamey element into its narrative structure. It not only makes for a less frustrating and richer adventure, but if you means you can enjoy the story without having to sub subconsciously filter out the, all the mechanical bits and bobs. And he pointed to Bioshock and Prince of Persia: Sands of Time. And um, I mean, do you think that's what the majority wants, guys? That they don't want this uh, this challenge anymore? They just rather um, drift through a game. I I would tend to agree with that. I think that. Um... Really, probably since sixth generation, um, in, in the the video game industry itself getting so large, it's becoming more and more, or it has become more and more like Hollywood. And in doing so, uh, I think that yes, it, it attracts more people, but they're 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 not going to want these um, these hardcore experiences that maybe we got in the eight bit days or the sixteen bit days or even uh, a lot of the thirty two bit days. It's just it's catering to a wider audience, and um, like again, I'll, I'll I'll reference RE5. Uh, to me, in a, in a lot of ways, RE5 just I mean, it's not even really a survival horror game in some ways. It's kind of more like a action horror game. I mean, the the horror element is still there, but it really it almost feels like a summer blockbuster with like a a, a scary conceit rather than a, a true horror game. You know, they probably do want an easier experience, but I don't necessarily think that it's a that bad a thing. I mean, we tend to look at older games, you know, with rose-tinted rose -tinted glasses, but I'm thinking specifically of games like Flower and Braid and Fable 2, games that don't offer, don't have game overs, and all these games were very highly acclaimed because it's just positive reinforcement all the time. And I think that that's a really interesting idea. And I think that it, you know, it may not, if you're in the mood for something like Contra, you know, you're not going to like those games. But I think that we're seeing kind of a paradigm shift in like a game that you cannot lose now. And in a sense, you still, well, I guess you really can't lose Flower, but um, some of these games you can still come up with your your own arbitrary goals and try and try and achieve those. I'm thinking like in Fable 2 you can try try not to die. Um, you know, Bioshock was also like that. Even if there's little penalty for dying, we're just ingrained to try and keep your character alive as much as possible. And Fable 2 I thought was really interesting in how it um, how it punished a player. It gave you a, a scar, which um, it would stay on your character for the rest of the game and you wouldn't gain any experience from the fight, and that was it. Otherwise, you can just keep going on your merry way and play as is. And uh, Steve and I were actually discussing this before before the podcast, that he felt that the scar wasn't as a big enough punishment because it was a single-player game. But I, I think it would be cool to have a game like, like Fable 2 where NPCs will react to that, so it will just shame the player, and it will constantly come back to haunt them, but it won't impede their progress. Right, I mean, uh, I, with Fable 2, I know that it, um, Peter Molyneux, the lead developer, wanted to make that punishment even harsher with Scars. They were going to be much worse, you know, you're gonna, your face would be completely horribly disfigured after a few deaths, and uh, you'd be limping around, but 
when they did the play testing, that <laughs> that didn't go down so well. So again, it's kind of that uh, majority doesn't necessarily want that but i completely agree with you i found it really interesting and um you know there was a little bit of punishment you know you, do, you did lose a bit of beauty for those scars but it wasn't huge but it kind of made me think of those <laughs> those old game over screens with those sort of emotionally crippling messages like you have failed or <laughs> you are not good enough try again and it's kind of just digs at the player and says uh, it's kind of like a permanent way of saying uh, you're not quite good enough are you i i, I like that way, I think that's a good workaround with death, trying to punish the player in ways that don't impede their progress throughout the game. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's interesting the way that the deathless game has been evolving in that way, and, and then, I mean, look like how I mean, the deathless games have been around for a while. Uh, there's games like Mist where you really can't die in that game, and uh, Lucas Arts Adventure games you couldn't die in those games unless you push the button in the bottom of the Maniac Mansion and blew the whole thing up, but that's pretty rare. But um, now it's it's more of a you know uh, of a way of letting you enjoy like games like Braid and, and Able to as you said game uh, they let you enjoy the game and everything that it has to offer and they they challenge you in other ways like um, through puzzles through ideas through you know getting uh, figuring out how to get from one place to another but um, by removing that death aspect they make they make you focus more on those other aspects on the adventuring on the puzzle solving on all that stuff, and I think yeah, that kind of evolved from the uh, the the whole you know LucasArts adventure type thing. Um, so it, it's definitely it's definitely interesting to see how Deathless games have evolved over the years and how they're taking form now. And I guess that leads directly into the whole major topic of today's show, which is is death in gaming dead? Is the idea of a game where you have a finite amount of lives or continues is, is gone forever? Will we see this come back in games more, or will developers keep coming up with ways of making games um, seemingly deathless? I mean, we've seen regenerating health become such a standard in every game. I mean, everything implements that now. And even Resident Evil 5, technically, with you know the ability to pick up your partner, there is a way to never die in that game. What do you guys think about the whole shift towards deathless games? Do you think this is the way to go, or do you think that developers are pushing it a little bit too far and taking away some of the core essence of what makes a game a game? I think it can go either way, actually. Um, I, I was actually reading something on uh, Destructoid yesterday about, about Prince of Persia, and they were they argued that it was more about the experience of, of the game rather than the, the game elements of the game, if, if you will. Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of an interesting uh, point. Um, I think that there's certain kinds of games that that lends itself to. Uh, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that we should just forego, you know, lives or, or just using save points rather than constant, you know, checkpoints and whatnot. I, I, personally, I, I feel that a lot of the games today kind of coddle the player a little bit too much. Uh, but, but I'm more of a traditionalist. I like really, really hard stuff. I mean, I played... Uh, when, uh, well, I, I never beat Devil May Cry 3, but um, the way I played it is I wouldn't... Uh, if I if I died mid-level, I wouldn't use a, a continue orb. I would just start the level over again. It's, uh, I'm only about halfway through the game. I, I realize I'm a little bit in the minority. I mean, I'm, I definitely feel you know, very much the same way. But, I mean, the way that every new game has been going, it's it's been getting more and more... You know, towards the casual player, appealing to everybody so that everyone can play. Um, like in five years' time, do you think that like 
more like every game is going to be regeneration. It's it's going to be more about the experience. Or do you think like do you think games like Devil May Cry three will be gone forever? I, I don't think they'll ever be gone forever because there'll always be a hardcore niche and there'll always be people to fill that niche. Um, but I I could easily see uh, that sort of influence in gaming shrinking, which is kind of a, an alarming thought to me. But I, I mean, I guess we'll see how it plays out. Uh, so, Joe, you brought up a really fascinating point earlier about how how death mechanics, by removing them, it helps you focus on other aspects of the game. And the first thing that brought to mind for me was Zack and Wiki and how that game had had death mechanic. And I, I thought that game had good puzzles, but I hated almost everything else about its design, notably the, the death mechanic. Um, because doing the same thing over and over in a point and click, it's just not fun. Like, you know, you're doing the exact same steps. It's not an action game, so it doesn't kind of keep you in the moment and as involved as you'd be in a Devil May Cry or Ninja Gaiden. Um, and, I, you know, conversely, I love the LucasArts games and how those have no death penalty, so you can just try anything or, you know, anything that the game allows you to at least and with no fear of messing anything up. You know, in some ways, players are being coddled now, but I feel like in other ways getting rid of death can really enhance a design. Braid is another perfect example of this, where there's just, there's no way to, to lose a level. You can always go back to the main menu, and it's, as far as getting a game over goes, it's frustration-free. As far as solving the puzzles go, that game is fiendishly difficult. Um, I, I really just think it comes down to genre. I mean, a game that uh, that has a lot of strategy in it, I feel like like having a game over works very well for something like that. Like a game like StarCraft, if you could just can keep continuing it, it wouldn't work as well. Or the example that, that comes to the top of my head is a game like, I love the boss fights in the Metal Gear Solid games, how you have a lot of equipment and you have to devise your own unique strategy for, for slaying a boss. And if you could just come back mid-fight with a little health boost like you could in Prince of Persia or Bioshock, I don't think it would work quite the same. But at the same time, you know, you die on a bus and they never last more than a few minutes, you know, maybe five minutes, uh, you know, except for some of the sniper duels that can go on for quite some time. But for the most part, I, I feel like if it's a game that encourages experimentation, I mean, I guess when you think about an experiment, you're just changing one variable at a time. So I really like it when a game will, will kick you back to that. So, yeah, exactly, like you're saying. See, the, the problem that I have with um, opening the door to deathless games to, to making this an option is um, I fear that more games will be reconfigured like Prince of Persia was and changed to fit the deathless model. Like De Prince of Persia, the, the Sands of Time games, um, those games weren't particularly tough, but you, you had a finite amount of uh, power to rewind time and to pull yourself away from death. And in the new game, they took away that limit, and they basically let you know let time rewind as often as you want. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this. I think we're going to be seeing a lot of established series, maybe even Metal Gear, like Jeff was talking about, where the rules of the game are going to change a little bit to allow um, to allow the quote-unquote deathless model to kind of seep in. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more games with regenerating health. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more. Uh, workarounds for the traditional death system, and I think that the Prince of Persia model um, will become a standard simply because it opens up those games to a, a whole new audience of people. 
I, so in that way, I think the death will sort of die. I completely disagree, Joe. Um, okay. Sorry, I completely disagree. I think um, Steve and Jeffrey are getting at the heart of the matter, which is that, um, you know, Steve was talking about what Destructo had said regards the experience um, and, and why Prince of Persia players maybe didn't necessarily have a problem with it because... Um, they were enjoying getting swept along in the story and exploring the world and the same for Bioshock, the same for Santa Time and, and what Jeffrey's saying about genre in that it, with those games um, it's not really about the challenge um, and I think you brought up strategy games if, I, if I'm not misquoting you Jeffrey and those by definition are more gamey than most genres those are based on, on you know, they, they have their heritage in board games. Um, they have real rules, and there has to be a loss condition uh, for those things to work. And so, when Jeffrey talks about genre, he's talking about maybe the difference between a, a game and an experience. Uh, and death can be a loss condition in a game, and an experience is an impediment. People just wanted to keep being in that world, to keep moving along in the Prince of Persia game, in the, in the Bioshock game. I guess why maybe this again comes to my own problem with Prince of Persia is I just didn't enjoy the experience. I wasn't getting into the whole uh, platforming of it and the story was, for me, terrible and the characterization was poor. So maybe that's why I have my own problems with Prince of Persia and it's not related to it um, ex uh, exonerating or removing death from it. So I, I, like Jeffrey's saying, I don't see a real-time strategy game, say, where death isn't an issue. I don't see Geometry Wars where death... You know, how can you do Geometry Wars without death? I, I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. I, I guess, like, my personal uh, happy medium is I love games, like action games, where when you die, you have to, to go back to the level, but you still keep some experience. When you die, you might have to restart a level, but you still keep some experience that you gained. Uh, perfect examples of this are Beautiful Joe or Devil May Cry 3. What, what that game didn't tell you is that if you save before a boss, it won't save your progress in the level. It'll save all the, the experience you've collected. So I, you know, I died so many times in that game. Everyone did. It was a fiendishly challenging game, although I actually did beat it. It's one of my proudest gaming moments, and I beat the, the original version of that game. But I love things where you know, there's some passion, but it's still gently makes the game easier and easier by giving you you know by giving you experience or by giving you currency and then you can choose whether whether to upgrade your character or if you don't if you feel like maybe that'd be too cheap you don't want to buy health items and you don't have to um i always kind of wish that even though jrpgs aren't really my favorite genre as i'm sure you guys know i i think i'd be way more curious about them if they had at least let me keep my experience when I die. I think that, that would be a really good way to, to handle games like Persona and Final Fantasy. Well, Dragon Quest does that. Maybe someday I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sorry. You're harsh on Dragon break. Quest there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll... If there were other things about Dragon Quest that interested me, maybe, but that's, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> See, also you can you can look at that conversely with, uh, especially with a game like uh, Persona, or but it, really any JRPG, uh, is because, but it, again with with Persona, um, if you don't grind, it's the the dungeons are almost impossible. Like the 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 higher the higher levels or lower levels, depending on you know what kind of 
setup you have. Um, and particularly the bosses are, are very, very difficult. And so death is used in, in that way because you have to get to a, a, get your characters up to a level where you can beat this boss or whatever because even if you do level up a lot, the, the last save point isn't always near where the boss is going to be. And so it can be very, very frustrating because you, you do have to play like, you know, an hour's worth of, or, you know, you lose an hour's worth of gameplay or something if you if you die. So you have to be very careful. And so I think death is, I well, I, I think it makes it more challenging and I, I love a challenge. <laughs> so, although I'm, I'm, grinding isn't always my favorite thing, but I can just kind of tune it out. And I don't know, that's, maybe that's just me. I totally agree, Steve. RPGs uh, as a genre on the whole uh, really use death um, as, a, as a, an important tool in their their experience because you can't really force someone to grind unless there is some type of risk of death. Otherwise, the guy would just run right to the last boss and kill him in two seconds, and that would be the end of the game. So um, I think to, to go along with what I was saying earlier, uh, I don't think that death will die in everything. I think RTSs will still be challenging. I think that, you know, Geometry Wars will still exist. I think games like Contra will never change to be more casual or anything. Or Mega Man. I don't even see, like, a, a, a main series Mega Man game being easy ever. But I do think that a lot of mainstream series, a lot more of them, will be will kind of edge a bit towards more casual experiences. I think we're like, Gears of War isn't hard. Gears of War on normal is very easy game. You could beat that game very simply. You will probably not die that much. That's why most players, um, they, 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 they say that if you're an experienced shooter player, you should play it on hardcore, which is the, the harder difficulty. And I think that, you know, with regenerating health, with um, no real punishment and death, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more games like Prince of Persia, like Fable 2, like even Dead Space, where there's not that much punishment in death, that you're going to be able to keep going. You're not going to really lose that much. They maybe will kill you, but they will find a way that it doesn't really hurt you that much, and you can continue your experience. Keep the flow going, as Prince of Persia would, you know, would argue. So I think that we're going to see, like, the next Metal Gear. I mean, Metal Gear Solid 4, to be totally honest with you, was the easiest one. I mean, I, I don't even remember dying that much in that game at all. And I think uh, they didn't really change the mechanics in that game that much, except the fact that you can run around with a gun now and not really get killed. You can run and gun as much as you want. Um, so even in that, they made that series a little bit easier to allow more of an audience to get into it. That's that's not a big change for the Metal Gear Solid series. That's a huge change for the Metal Gear Solid series. I mean, this is completely off-tangent, but that completely changed the dynamic of that game, and that's why Metal Gear Solid 4 is probably the most accessible of the series. Right. Um, but to to come back onto to the more relevant point, with you brought up Gears of War 2, that's one of the games that's not really about a single-player experience. Um, and that's why I don't think it's a huge problem for that genre, first-person shooter, because that's becoming much more about the multiplayer experience to actually become much easier on death in its single-player. Because it really, the point of single-player in those games now is to teach you the mechanic so that you can go and use it in multiplayer, teach you the, to, to, to show you the ropes. If it's a solely single-player game and it has these problems, then that's more relevant for me because... It is affecting the experience, but I, I wouldn't have a problem with uh, Resistance, Gears of War, Halo really becoming far easier in a single player because I think those games aren't about the single player. Well, I mean, Gears specifically, I think that they really did try to make it more of a single player experience. I, I remember Cliffy B saying that they only threw multiplayer into the first game six months before it came out. So I think they were trying with that specific one to build a great single player experience to begin with, and then the 
course, the multiplayer exploded and became this huge thing. I think maybe two more, they focus more on the multiplayer. But um, I think with certain games, yes. With certain games, the single player is just a training ground for the multiplayer. But I think with other other titles, um, it's more about... Right, let's go to Resident Evil 5. It's, that's a good example of a game that... I mean, yes, it's built for a co-op experience, but that game is also incredibly easy. And because you can instantly pick up your partner at any time, you have plenty of health. There's stuff everywhere. There's pickups in every single... Under every piece of fruit, there is either health or ammo. And that completely changed the dynamic of a series that used to be pretty damn hard. And they also put checkpoints in that game, which the game the series never had. So I think that that is what I'm talking about. The, the, the casualization of of mainstream games that are bringing death back a little bit and making it less of an issue than it was in the previous generation and the PlayStation 2 games and stuff like that. That's where I think we're going to go, and I think that's not going to stop. I think we're going to see more games dial back the death and, and put more of a, an everyone-can-play type feeling into it. And sure, they'll still be the hard mode for the, the, the hardcore players to jump into. But I think like mainstream games, big blockbusters... There's going to be the normal mode is going to be the easy mode of five years ago. Well, to put that to our guests, then, do you think it's a bad thing that games are becoming less punishing on players? I mean, do, should punishment even be a part of games anymore? Um, I think it depends on the game. I mean, personally, you know, we discussed this earlier. I probably have less patience than than a lot of you. Although I I remember Lisa Dusen and I, I think maybe Joe both twittered about Mad World and how they dislike you disliked. Uh, Midway through the game, you get to that Frankenstein-like monster, and you die, and you have to do that whole level over again. Uh, he's shaking his head because he had the same experience. I think everyone got to that point and was just so frustrated with that game, even though it's, you know, I think we all enjoyed that game on the whole. So I- I'm wondering how much of this is just nostalgia-based because we grew up on games like Mega Man and Ninja Gaiden, but when it, it happens in a newer game, we, we have a-, a different expectation. Um, I think with Mad World, why that was such an issue is because it was not characteristic of the game up to that point, in that the whole the whole of the game is so easy, you know, in terms of beating these uh, enemies that don't do anything, you know, they just sit there and wait for you to uh, do horrible stuff to them. And the bosses really weren't that taxing up to that point. Then suddenly you have this really, really difficult level. So it felt really dissonant with the whole experience. And then really there wasn't much hard after it either. So I think Madworld in that respect, is, a, is not the best of examples. But I do take your point, and um, I think a lot of it is, you know, Joe is a very traditional gamer. Joe's, I, you know, if the word hardcore is acceptable, Joe, you, would you describe yourself as hardcore? Sure. Right, and I think, you know, there is an element of roasting the glasses about it, and uh, that's why, you know, Mega Man 9 is not for the new audience. Um, I just wonder whether... Is it better that a game that a video game is for everybody or that it challenges some and alienates others i think that uh it's 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 a nice it's a nice idea that that games are sort of becoming for everybody like we'll we'll use the wii as the obvious example but you know if you look at the the software on the wii there's really not that many good games for quote-unquote hardcore gamers i mean you've got uh mad world um I guess House of the Dead and Dead Rising are, are, are kind of like that, and um, I don't know. I mean, they're just it, it, Resident Evil. Um, there's few and far between, um, it seems like. And I think I, I was reading something um, 
right after around around the holidays uh, last year, and it said that I, I read somewhere that there was like over I don't know 300 or 400 Wii games that came out in in, in 2008, and you know most of them uh, obviously were not catered uh, to gamers. They were they were they were catered to people that. Or just trying to get into gaming. That's that that could be a problem in the future. Not necessarily, but it, it if it's if it starts to take away from the core. Although going back to my uh, my my thoughts earlier on um, hardcore games, or you know that niche never going away, and I don't think it necessarily will. But uh, it, it does seem like there there's going to be a bit more of a a mainstream feel for a lot of things and. I, I'm, I again, I'm a traditionalist like, like Joe, uh, so I'm, I'm clearly biased. But that's <laughs> okay. Well, I'll put it to you, Jeffrey. Then, do you think that because I think you're a, not so much of a traditionalist gamer like like uh, Steve and, and Joe, do you think that with video games, because it's such an escapist medium, that maybe it's better <laughs> for games to try and alienate themselves away from death and really try to become an experience that's not frustrating for gamers and because uh, i suspect that you're more on board on the idea of challenge and death not being part of video games anymore i i guess what it comes down to is i i just don't have as much patience as, as some of you guys so i like having to do stuff over again if it's different every time like geometry wars 2 i think is amazing i think it's a classic game because most games that you'll play on there won't take you more than five minutes. So even when you die, you're not starting that much further back in terms of time, but every second of those five minutes is very immersive. So I think in in that regard, it works. And I, I think there's always going to be a market for the really hardcore games. Games like Ninja Gaiden and Devil May Cry certainly come to mind. And I actually I like both those series, especially Devil May Cry. Although I was, I was a bigger fan of Devil May Cry 4, or at least Devil May Cry 3, the, the special edition where they introduced the, the gold orbs that just let you continue midway through the level, I was not a fan of having to do the whole level over again. I mean, I like it. Yeah, I mean, I think it just comes down to not... I don't like to retrace my steps once I know that I can do something really well. Really, as far as you're concerned, once you know that you can do it, you don't really want to be punished by the game anymore. You just want to enjoy the rest of it and, and get on to the maybe next game. Or you know, I think there's a, a lot of mainstream gamers would agree with you. Right, like I said, I, I like a challenge. I just don't want. I like games that are really challenging and have good checkpoint. That's sort of my my ideal. Maybe one of the reasons I was really into Devil May Cry 4 and beat that game several times on its harder settings. Whereas with you, Joe, I, I get this impression that it, there's a resignation about it and that you're lamenting that it's not going to be part of the mainstream anymore. No, I, you know, I, I mean, I get frustrated too. Everyone gets frustrated. I think there's a way to do death right. Like I said earlier, I think that Mega Man does it right. I think I don't get frustrated that often in Mega Man because I know that as long as I, you know, I pay attention and I, I play patiently that I can do it. And, you know, it always works out. And especially in Mega Man 9, I mean, I see, I'm just an idiot. And, like, they had a store in that game where you can buy extra continues and stuff, and I refused to buy any of that stuff. <laughs> I, there's one, I think, where you, you didn't take any damage or something. I didn't buy any of that stuff. But, like, they gave you that stuff to make it fairer. And I think that's cool. I think that's the way to do it right. And as Jeff said, Zack and Wiki, I think, did it completely wrong. Because in that game, you were being punished for trying things, not for 
just, you know, going. In that game, everything you did, like, if I touched something to see what it does, it could kill me. And I'd have to redo the whole level from the beginning all over again. And if I wanted to come back, I had to pay, and there was a finite amount of coins that you could find in the game. I think that did it completely wrong. And I wanted to love Zack and Wiki, but I couldn't because of that. So I think as long as death is... I don't mind the casual experience. I don't mind Bioshock. I don't mind Prince of Persia. I actually enjoyed the new Prince of Persia quite a bit. Much more than Sinan, apparently. (laughs) But um, I think it has to be done right. I think if they purposely make games, you know, super easy, no death or anything, it's not going to be enjoyable. But if they... If they they plan it out well, and if they if it makes sense for that kind of game, I think that you know the the the, the deathless game can work. And I'm enjoying. I haven't played Fable Two yet, but I enjoyed what I played of it a lot, and I'm looking forward to playing that game. Uh, and I think that's going to be you know that in my opinion should be a game that does it right. So I think that both as as um, Steve was saying, I think both can exist. Uh, they both can coexist. That could be the deathless games. That could be the the, the hardcore killer games. Um, I just hope that the decision to make a game more casual, friendly, is the right one for that series. And I just hope that designers don't fall into the Wii craze of, hey, let's make our games for everybody, everything's fine, let's make Devil May Cry for Wii. I just, you know, I hope that the decision-making process stays intelligent. Well, I think I just had a, an epiphany listening to you, Joe, that it sounds like we actually do want games to be, even though you and I have very different tastes in terms of, you know, level design and what makes a challenge good, I think that we actually do want games to be for everybody, but not necessarily easy. I think what we want is a variety of options. I mean, you mentioned Mega Man 9 and the, the in-game store and that, and I brought up Devil May Cry 3 and Beautiful Joe earlier. We like games that that maybe give you the option to buy these power-ups, but you don't have to use them. Like, I referenced Metal Gear earlier. I never used rations in, in the later two, you know, in 3 and 4. I had them, and I just I didn't want to use them. I think I used them maybe my first playthrough just to, like, get a feel for the game, but I've played those games multiple times, and I, just, I wanted that hardcore experience. But you still have, you know, the option to make it easier. So anyone who who jumps into this game will find a way to make it to make it work for them. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is why I chose Super Mario Galaxy as my game to represent gaming on, on the show we did because it really is that game that everyone can play, and there is that spectrum of def- difficulty. And I think that's a huge way of dealing with the problem is providing a spectrum of difficulty. And I think the other way is what you're saying with Fable 2 is making the punishment something that doesn't impede progress. And I think those are the, those are the two directions I would like to see games go in terms of dealing with death. The other one, just to kind of, before we close, I think it's interesting, but not necessarily anything to do with the mainstream gaming, is um, the idea of permadeath. And I just wanted to really briefly get everyone's opinion on it because I think it's a really interesting concept, the idea of, say, an MMORPG where you're constantly in fear of death because you know it could be the end of your character forever. And, okay, obviously that's going to frustrate 99% of gamers, but there is quite a lot of uh, a sizable minority who do want something like that. And I just wanted to, not necessarily if you're advocating it or criticizing it, I just wanted to get your opinions on it, really. So um, what, what do you think, Steve, of permadeath in video games? I, I think that permadeath is a very interesting idea in games. I'm, I'm not sure I'd want to see it. Actually, I'm not even sure how you could see it in a lot of, uh, a lot of genres. I mean, with MMOs, it, it makes sense because you're, you're investing all this time and in, in, in whatever into a character. And if you have permadeath in, say, like an RPG, then, well, I don't know. I, I suppose that that could make things a lot more interesting because then you'd really have to rely on on save points and again like I was talking about earlier just grinding and and uh, 
getting getting to a point where you had enough reassurance in your own abilities that you weren't gonna gonna die because if you die then that's it. If the concept of permadeath is expanded on ever, although the casualization it seems that we're seeing uh, it it seems like it's going to be less and less of a an, an issue even in the the niche markets that it's in now. But um, if it if it were expanded on, I would say that um, as long as they don't do anything sadistic, like erase your save data when 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 you die, then that would I, that that would be a little bit too much even for me. <laughs> well, I I hadn't heard much about this, but hearing you talk about it, it makes me think that we we already had it. We you brought up at the top of the show with arcade games, you have to p- plug quarters into them or you can't continue, and. I'm wondering, and I'm not sure if this would be a good idea or a bad idea, but if uh, game designers made games that were maybe you know free to play or very cheap to buy, like five dollars, and you had to pay for lives or something, you know, a, a dime each life or some, something like that. I, I'm not sure I would like that or not. I, I guess it depends on on the game, or maybe they gave you an option to just buy the whole game and have. I mean, like you were saying, I, I dislike the idea of replaying a whole game. But if there was some kind of penalty, like having to actually spend, you know, real Earth money on your lives, um, that's you know a form of permadeath. And yeah, uh, <laughs> man, I, the more I think about, it, the more I think that'd be an ingenious idea for developers and terrible for us consumers because right. we, I know, we'd set aside you know twenty bucks on this game and end up going over. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it would actually be a bad idea if if, if more games had uh, subscription fees or, or uh, fees for for lives, uh, especially fees for lives. That's that's a little excessive, I think. I've heard that mentioned before, um, and uh, I know I know people who would play that game. I think it's interesting because there's again that balance of escapism versus simu- simulation, and you know, like I, I always feel with video games, one of the big things about it is that we try to conquer death and uh, that's why we like it. So kind of that immortality, immortality dream. And um, it wouldn't be for me, but I think um, I'm with you, Jeffrey. I can see ways of it becoming successful and really exploiting a certain niche. What what about you, Joe? Well, I mean, we were talking earlier in the show about, I ship, sorry, before the show about uh, steel battalion and that game has permadeath. Uh, If you don't eject from your mech, before your vec blows up, you die. You it actually erases your save game off your Xbox hard drive, and that's it. You have to start over from the beginning. So that's a pretty hilarious way to implement permadeath, especially into a hardcore, ridiculously tough game like that. But I think the upcoming uh, Heavy Rain actually does permadeath kind of well. In that game, um, you play as multiple characters, and if you die as one of those characters, that's it. They remain dead for the rest of the game, and the game changes, and it puts you in control of a new character. So, I mean, I know it's, it's, you know, it's linear and there are only a certain amount of ways that can plan out. But in a way, you know, if you do kill a character, that's it. And they're, that's it. The rest of the game, they're done. You have to figure out a way around it. So I think that kind of stuff, um, that kind of implementation of permadeath uh, is, is pretty interesting. And I think we're going to probably see that a bit more than we have. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting in Heavy Rain because that's all about, you know, really making an emotional attachment to that main character and all those main characters. I think uh, you start off as the as the lady detective, which we've seen in all the in the trailers, and uh, you know that really does capitalise on the idea of character attachment. And uh, 
I think that would be interesting, definitely. That that's, That is uh, certainly a direction for permadeath to go down. Okay, I think we've talked about death too much. I'm kind of depressed, so we probably should close the show. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I, hopefully if I do a good enough editing job, this won't come through, but it's been a... It's been a mission, <laughs> guys. <laughs> uh, we, I don't know if it's just the, it's the Joe Jeffrey factor. When you're both on the show, we tend to... Uh... <laughs> I know, I'm terrible. I tend to ramble. Oh, no. I, well, I think I, I'm rambling too, a lot. <laughs> rambling's fine. I, I don't think your rambling's been the, the cause of internet connection problems, hopefully. I don't, I, I, I don't think your, your guy's rambling is that strong. I hope not. But, um... <laughs> In any case, I, I, I want to give a big thank you to both of you for, for sticking it out. So thank you so much, um, Steve and Jeffrey, and to you, Joe, of course, as always. Um, but uh, before we go, if you wanted to make any plugs or shout-outs for um, anything, any sites you work for, anything you've seen. So, um, Jeffrey, how about you? Okay, so you can always find my stuff at uh, thegamereviews.com with Sinan and Joe. And also my my blog, the, the name has changed, it's now jumpingmustache.com. I actually ended up changing it a, a couple days after I plugged it on on the program with you guys a few weeks ago. So, um, so yeah, it's just by the domain name, just jumpingmustache.com, and you can find all my stuff there, and I'll link to my DGR things and, and the other thoughts on gaming I have. And uh, I guess I'll just give a plug for uh, for play since I, you know, they're my place of employment. Uh, just playmagazine.com. Uh, you can find my stuff there. Um, I write reviews and. and well, anything really, anything they tell me to write. But we all we also have a lot of other, <laughs> a lot of other good writers uh, on staff, so that's good. Um, and then I, I also, uh, this won't matter to 99% of the people that listen to this. But for those of you in Portland, uh, I also write for my college newspaper at uh, Portland State. So if you go to dailyvanguard.com, that's uh, uh, that's where I or I, I do a lot of reviews for them too. Uh, just go to the arts and culture section. Yeah. Maybe we'll get some hits off that. Check both of those out: Play Magazine and Daily Vanguard, and uh, of course, Joe uh, Jeffrey. Sorry, uh, Jumping Mustache, which I'm really surprised you got the domain for. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very cool. So, uh, <laughs> well, congrats on that. Um, okay. So, Joe, uh, you give your closing thought first, and then I'll give mine second. Sure. Uh, to the other couple million people who are a little disappointed about the 3D Realms closure this week. I just want to throw my uh, condolences to all the people who lost their jobs and uh, to all the other Duke fans out there, uh, still believe in, still believe I think it's coming out. <laughs> Duke Nukem Forever will be in my hands one day. So uh, keep believing, fans. The first stage is denial, Joe. I love it. It's such a good game. <laughs> right. Um, well, whilst we uh, placate Joe's imagination for a bit, let us uh, I'd like to give um, a shout-out to friend of the show Matthew Walker at Chico Central it was his birthday on Saturday so happy birthday Matt I know you had a bit of a rough okay. week uh, uh, so uh, our best wishes to you and um, so um, right let's all go and relax and recover from this podcast uh, thanks for listening and we'll join you all next week bye